Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. This podcast will help you accelerate multiplication in your church so you and your team can create movement. Exponential is the largest community of like-minded multiplication leaders on the planet. Our mission is to equip you as a movement maker with actionable principles, ideas, and solutions from some of today's top thought leaders. We see in you a culture of multiplication deep inside your life and ministry. Thank you for joining this conversation originally recorded inside of Exponential's Multiplier Resource Center, a hub of content and conversation. Hey, welcome uh, to this Exponential uh, show. Um, We are Forge America. My name is Roland Smith. I'm the National Director for Forge America, and I'm joined with some friends from Forge, and we want to welcome you to this conversation and glad uh, that you're joining us. Real quickly, let me kind of go around uh, the screens and, and introduce who's going to be with us. Um, We have John Rittner, who is the lead pastor of Ecclesia Hollywood, which is a faith community um, in Hollywood, California. He is our movie star pastor, we kind of jokingly say. Uh, Beth Wolf is the lead pastor of Clarksburg Church in Clarksburg, Maryland. Uh, Drew Thurman is a co-founding pastor of Renaissance in Boston, Mass. And, And Drew, now you also own co-own, I guess, kind of a coffee shop co-working space. So that's a whole uh, different life um, along with some others. And then Andreas Zalea is a pastor uh, and part of the staff at Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas. So, um, and all of these people are part of Forge America in different ways on the teaching team and hub directors. And uh, we're glad uh, to just have you join us for a conversation around um, missional movement of the church. So thank you guys for for being here and um, uh, glad you're joining us in person on this. And so let me let me kind of kick kick off the discussion um, with a question and get us going on something that we're going to be talking about at our our uh, pre-conference uh, track, uh, which is titled Empowering the Church for Missional Movement. And we kind of chose that title and forge on purpose. Um, the word movement is important to us, and movement can be maybe defined in some different ways with some different kinds of metrics. We all want movement as church pastors or organizational leaders, um, but Forge intentionally speaks about missional movement. Uh, so why is missional movement important um, in our current cultural climate of church? What, what makes missional movement different than maybe some other ways that movement is defined? And I'll let any of you guys just jump in. Yeah, Roland, we, we used to joke kind of in the Ford circle for years that uh, the word missional initially had value and meaning. And then eventually it just became so bland that everyone was saying it, you know, and, um, you know, uh, the more cool the word got, the more churches just kind of slapped it on their website and said, hey, we're a missional church. But you couldn't quite figure out initially what that meant. And it kind of lost its meaning. And sadly, I kind of think the word movement is is headed that direction if it's not already there. And so the phrase missional movement might just be doubling down on words that don't mean anything anymore. I don't know. But um, when you think of movement, again, you know, uh, Alan Hirsch has given his life to this concept and written about it in Forgotten Ways and, and the whole idea of the DNA of movements and talk about the six elements and everything. But, you know, to me, ultimately, it boils down to 
uh, a group of people, a collective of people who come together with a common purpose to try to initiate change uh, in the world around them. And, and I think the key part of that ethos is that there is a, the desire is to bless and benefit others. It's not inward, it's outward. And if you think about the early church as a movement, it, it primarily was oriented outward. It was about being sent out into the community to add value, to seek the shalom, to you know, see the kingdom of God come in every nook and cranny of, of the, the world around them. And so much of what I often see now is people slap the word movement on it is really more inward. It's about an inward organization or brand, almost as if like Coca-Cola is a movement simply because it's, it's everywhere in the world right now. And I would say, ultimately, you know, it's not about seeking the flourishing of society. It's about selling sugar water and making money for stockholders. So there's something that in the ethos that to me doesn't allow a Coke as a product to simply be a movement because its scope is throughout the world. I think for something to be a missional movement, it really has to be a community of people whose primary orientation is around Jesus and then captures that sentness of Jesus to then look to the world around them. And so... Um, you know, I, I think that is what is at the heart of our tribe is trying to uh, serve and center other people and in, in the places around us uh, and just kind of see the church as not existing for its own benefit, but existing to try to uh, bless and love those who are around us in a way that captures that Jesus is Lord ethic. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, just, just to jump in, I think that a beautiful example of what that looks like is, I mean, I was recently talking to a pastor of a church and we we're talking about this idea of missional. And he said, oh yeah, we did the missional thing, right? And what he means is we did a sermon series about missional last year. We've done it. We've talked about it. It's over. And I think I liken that, like I get the image of an iron bar being bent in a certain direction and that you're like, yeah, see, now we're bent in that direction. Like we have missional. Um, but the reality is, is that when you take an iron bar and you just bend it, you've changed the external shape of it. But unless you have heated up that bar and changed the molecular structure in the bar, uh, you've actually just weakened it by bending it in that shape. You actually haven't added, you, you have to heat it up. So all of the molecules actually change direction with the bar and it strengthens it in that new bending. And I think that what oftentimes I've seen churches do when they say, oh, we've done missional is they've just kind of changed the exterior thing. Maybe they've added a program or something like that, but they haven't dug deep enough into the core foundations and values of, of what's happened to really heat up the church, really understand the DNA at the molecular structure to then shift it and change it. And I think that that's one of the things that Forge really digs down deep into is how do we just not slap a program or a sermon series on something, but how do we really change and shape the molecular structure of a church so that we are all being bent in the same way? Wow. That's a great metaphor, uh, Beth. I'm going to ask you to bring an iron bar to <laughs> and I'll just, exponential. Ugh. And we want you to do that. Yeah. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Drew, I, I, I'm thinking of you in particular because I know Renaissance was started with a, a little bit of a different ecclesi ecclesiology or flow um, or maybe liturgy, you would call it, where you guys, I think, meet. You meet one time a month as a large community, three times a month as dispersed kind of house churches or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about like, how does that, how does that speak to fulfilling movement? Um, and why did you choose that? 
<clears throat> yeah. Well, one, I love what John and Beth, like all the thoughts I had when you first posed that question, they said, and I do think there's probably, um, you know, I used to just think, oh yeah, this is really easy. Um, everybody should just do what Forge is doing. And I think I've realized more and more that there are some deeply held theological positions that we have to like, yeah. you know, that we at least have to challenge, you know, with our, you know, soteriology and our eschatology. I think a lot of us, we think we're being missional because all we think God is asking us to do is convert somebody. And so, you know, I think we have to wrestle through some of those implications. Is Jesus not just Savior, but is He King? Is He Lord? And that's really what we started with is saying, we believe Jesus has more for us and more for everybody uh, than just walking an aisle and saying a prayer, uh, that fundamentally He is after the restoration and renewal of all things. And if that's true, we have to participate with Him there. Um, and honestly, I've been shaped by Forge's literature enough. And one of the things I reason I, you know, jumped in with this community is I'd been influenced by Leslie Newbegin and David Bosch and these great missiologists that Forge is kind of championing on a practical level, um, their ideologies. And I love what David Bosch says, kind of what almost what John was saying, that it's not alerting, it's not uh, bringing people to a brand. We're not just recruiting people to a brand. We're alerting people uh, to, you know, the universal reign of God through Christ. Mm -hmm. And so for us to do that, we actually, we actually have to live a totally new habit, a totally new, you know, be formed in a totally new way and, and a totally new lifestyle where Jesus is King, uh, not just where we come and worship him once, once a week, but it literally takes and affects all of our lives. And so what does it happen when we release people to live into that kind of kingdom ethic, uh, in, you know, in their everyday life. And the reason we do it in kind of a decentralized fashion as well is there's another level to this, to the question you asked, that there is a cultural distance that we have to acknowledge as well. Mm -hmm. There is part of the reason that we're even more emphasizing missional movement is that our culture is becoming less and less Christian. There's uh -huh. uh, less and less of a desire to show up to a building or to a Sunday morning centric thing. And so even more, the reason we want to empower everyday people uh, to live, you know, live out this kingdom ethic in community in the everyday spaces of life is that might be the only chance our neighbors and our community get to see or hear about Jesus uh, because, uh, you know, the church is being kind of kicked out of the public square in so many of our, our, our communities and our society. Yeah, and that um, one of my fears, um, I'd, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this. One of my fears is that uh, the term microchurch is going to become the next buzzword. I'm, I mean, I'm already kind of um, a little bit fearful of that. Co Forge has been involved in, you know, quote unquote, the microchurch conversation for a while. Uh, we've launched a microchurch network here in Colorado. Um, but this word microchurch is getting thrown around in a lot of different ways now. And so um, does adding microchurches to your church ecclesiology, does that help define movement, missional movement? You know, um, Andreas, what, what is, what does that mean in your context down in Houston? Well, not necessarily, right? Not if what you're trying to do is simply replicate the big church experience in a smaller setting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, not if what you're trying to do is simply do uh, what you do on a typical Sunday morning, which I'm thinking of the typical American evangelical church, um, the uh, big uh, charismatic personality of the preacher, but in a, you know, in a living room, the children's programming in a living room, 
the worship experience with the lights and the smoke and the guitars and the drums, but in the living room or in a bar or in a park or in an elementary school. Like if all you're doing is right, just replicating that in a much smaller. And we have, I mean, I'm sorry, but I, you know, if that's what we're doing, I'd much rather go to the big mega church because at least I know that they, you know, they're doing it really good. Like if, you know, um, and they're doing it well. They're they're yeah. satisfying my consumeristic tendency. So I'd rather much experience that in a nice, you know, air conditioned building rather than a park down by Long Beach, you know, where I'm getting sand in the face. Um, to go to uh, to piggyback off of something that uh, John brought up earlier, uh, he brought up the early church. I mean, the outward the 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 early church was fundamentally at its DNA outward oriented. Um, and the church has always been, you know, uh, that at its DNA, at its core, it's been missional. It's seen itself as um, as a sent people of God into the world, not to itself. Um, now, of course, what happened is post-Constantine, at least in the Western uh, church, which we've inherited, uh, it became uh, religion and Christianity became cultural and built what we now know as Christendom. Now, Newbigin, as Drew said, is probably one of the first to really do a good job of explaining um, the desperate need that the Western church uh, has for a missionary encounter, right, uh, towards the West. The church needs a missionary encounter to the West. And that was that, you know, since then, you know, that kind of, has been un- that unraveled a bunch of consequences and effects for the church that we're still trying to make sense of, you know, 50, 60, 70 years after Newbigin um, said that and wrote that. Um, but there, there, there is this desperate need that the church has, uh, or at least the American evangelical church um, has to, to learn from what the global church is doing as well in other parts of the world. Um, so I, yeah. Yeah. One, one of the questions that I'm getting or conversations that I'm having with pastors um, every week, sometimes two or three times a week, um, there is a liminality that has um, reared its head because of COVID and you know, uh, pol- political stuff, racial stuff, er- everything that's kind of happened over the past three three years, which we've all felt, we've all kind of witnessed um, that maybe it accelerated um, something that we were already seeing in kind of Barna and Pew statistics and conversations and debates around, you know, the church um, still having a voice in culture today. And so that decline may have accelerated. And so like at, at our at our community of faith here in Colorado Springs, you know, 30 percent of the people that were kind of coming for a Sunday gathering aren't coming for a Sunday gathering anymore. And so uh, we have started shifting to a dispersed uh, thought process around our ecclesiology. And so we launched, you know, a microchurch network to help help do that. I know that, um, John, like your, your work in Ecclesia, uh, you've done some very, very specific things 
in terms of shifting kind of a brick and mortar type uh, community of faith into a more missional posture as well. So, and all of us are kind of doing that in our context. So, could we talk for a second about the liminal place that pastors find themselves in? And so, here they are shepherding a community of faith that feels there feels like a gap. How and why should they? should they uh, engage in this missional movement conversation as opposed to the attractional conversation or growth conversation that's happened over the past couple of decades? Well, I I'd love to jump in here and just share like a statistic that I recently heard, which was 59% of churches are under a hundred people. Mm-hmm. 25% of churches have 200 to 500 people in attendance and only 3% have people over churches, only 3% of people attend a church that is over a thousand. And yet what typically happens is every small church Mm. looks at the churches that are over a thousand and says, how should I do church? Tell me what to do. And, and I, and I, and I, I, that frustrates me because it's like, why, why, what works and is necessary in structure for a church over a thousand is unnecessary and doesn't work for a church that is under 200 or under 500. Like it's just not the same thing. And so it seems as though we have been chasing the wrong dream and we've been chasing the wrong metrics and we've been chasing the wrong things. And Mm -hmm. in that situation, we've been chasing something that is not possible in our current culture due to COVID, due to racial injustice, due to um, political divides that are there. Like, what would it look like if instead of chasing what the megachurch has said is how you're supposed to do church, if we instead shifted the conversation to say, no, what is what does my hyper-local context ask of me? Like, what, what does it look like for me to actually dig down deep and look at the very specific block location or city location. And it's hard to describe like how big you should be looking. Um, I think it's Mm. bigger than your immediate congregation. It might be like a four block radius, a mile radius. It may be your small town. I'm not sure, depending on your context, it might have a different sort of geographical location that you're looking at. But, but what, what is it that I am being called to do in my hyper local context? And I think that that gets at this idea of, of um, embodying Christ of incarnating Christ in that particular local space. Um, but I think that if we continue to just keep doing what has we've always thought was the right thing, we are going to have to shut our doors. No, that's, <clears throat> I'll jump in. That's really good. And I actually, as she was even talking, it's fresh in my mind. I just got done uh, reading Anti-Fragile from uh, Tlaib. I'm not necessarily recommending everyone read the book because it's uh, a little bit all over the place and he's a little bit arrogant, but uh, <laughs> he makes uh, he makes some really good uh, arguments. And one of the things he talks about is basically the definition is he says, we don't have uh, a word for anti-fragile in the West, that when yeah. we think of something, you know, not being fragile, we just think unbreakable or robust. But he's actually saying, you know, anti-fragile is something that's actually strengthened through disorientation or through shockwaves being thrown at it. Um, And one of the areas he talks about is that we've bought into this mindset that it's simple and mechanical is actually less fragile. And it's actually not true when you look at organizations or organisms. 
actually, the more complicated something is, the more organic it is, mm-hmm. actually, the more anti-fragile it is. And so part of the reason you, you asked, why should people buy into this conversation? I was one of those mm-hmm. people that bought into the Tom Rainier simple church thing, that if we just did five things really well, we asked everybody to be a part of that, that we would be less fragile, that we would produce more disciples. I started to see, I had my own crisis of effectiveness of that before um, COVID even happened. I think COVID mm-hmm. has only expedited that for a lot of other pastors who are looking around and saying the same thing, like, wow, I thought we were pretty, you know, we, we were anti-fragile. Now I'm realizing this sermon-based Sunday morning centric thing is super loose and fragile. And so I actually think it's hard because you're going to let go of a lot of control and you're going to have to trust the Holy Spirit in a way that you've never trusted before. But when you do, and if we truly believe, like, yes, everyone has different gifts and calls, everyone has different capacities, but that every single person in our congregations, every single person that claims the name of Christ has in them the potential to see God use them where he has them. uh, And we become about empowering people to do that. uh, I think the church becomes anti-fragile. Yes, it's going to be a little bit more chaotic and organic. Yes, it's going to mean asking some tough questions for the churches that we pastor and care for, but the church and the kingdom are actually going to be better off because we do it. And I think that's almost what Beth's kind of advocating for. Um, and again, why I think I think a lot of other people need to join this conversation. Drew, you uh, to piggyback off of that one, because, um, uh, man, that's that's really good. And you probably know that as well, because you're up in Boston and Northeast and um, all of the uh, the cultural climate up there, uh, uh, that obviously varies by place, but, you know, Roland, you mentioned, uh, this kind of liminal space that, that pastors are in, you know, it's funny because it's a lot of pastors are in this liminal space now, um, only because we've been in Christendom for so long. We don't know any other way of doing ministry, of being church. You know, Beth, the, the whole mega church model, we kind of take that for granted, not realizing that's, you know, it's only been around for a few decades. Um, the church is always and has always been in a state of liminality and disorientation. In fact, that's the only space and season where the church thrives is when it yeah. enters into that liminal space, right. lives into it. And learns how to navigate it. I mean, you asked the, the black evangelical church in America whether or not they're in the liminal space. Yeah, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. You asked the minority, the Latino church, uh, the immigrant churches, whether or not they're in the liminal space. Yeah, they've been doing it for hundreds of years, right? So the, the point is, the church is always in a liminal space. It only very rarely is it able to maybe uh, wake up and therefore the need for this missional conversation for the American evangelical church to wake up, realize, you know, um, what, what's going on um, and actually begin to rethink some of these key paradigms. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, point, Andreas. Um, um, so Drew kind of launching a little bit off of what you were saying. So, I mean, basically what you were saying is mission is messy and so if you're if you are going to engage missional movement that we've been called to to announce the kingdom um, and the rule and reign of Christ, then we should expect messiness is a, is a little bit about what what you were saying. It's not 
It's not simple. And so we, all of us have kind of engaged missional discipleship. Let's kind of, let's kind of shift to like, how do you, how do you practically pull this off? Um, So someone that a church pastor that's interested in, in the missional conversation uh, for the future. And it's like, what now, how do I do this? Um, What are some of the specific ways that you have uh, discipled people toward a missional emergence in their life and identity as a missionary? Because we all believe that everyone that follows Christ is a missionary. We would call them all a missionary in different contexts. And I'm going to pick on John first because um, he's got the coolest book out. With uh, Forge right now, positively irritating, which should be picked up on Amazon. Uh, but you talk about food trucks. That's one of the one of the metaphors that we have um, been gifted t- with from you. Uh, can you kind of explain a little bit of ecclesia, the food truck thing, and then talk about the talk about the um, imagination? groups too that you did that I got to experience and be part of? Because this is like a practical way that you're discipling people toward missional identity. Yeah, it's funny you say that about um, practical. You know, um, part of my kind of theology of spiritual formation has always been that there are two primary catalysts in our spiritual life. There are practical catalysts and providential catalysts. Providential catalysts are things like grief and joy and COVID and, you know, these things that are outside of your control that, that often God ordains and causes you to lean into him. And then the practical catalysts are the practices that you choose to engage in, that you actually kind of have control over and can build a schedule around, you know? And so traditionally growing up, you know, coming to Christ 25 years ago, those spiritual formation practices that I was being discipled in were all primarily internal oriented. They were quiet times and how to pray and how to read the Bible and maybe how to witness or share your faith but rarely were they involved in kind of thinking about the, the community outside of us. And so part of, I think, this missional conversation is helping people with a, a, a missional discipleship that has that includes practices that are about others, that are about serving others, you know, whether that's blessing others, eating meals with others, listening to the stories of others, expressing curiosity in their journeys and stuff. And so um, those are those can be individual practices that we've tried to teach as a community but also realizing that individual, the individual missionary life is very hard to sustain. It's very exhausting and we are meant to be in community. And so how do you create communities that can mm. participate in these practices together? And so that's where we came up with kind of just the modern urban, you know, parable of a food truck, mm-hmm. you know, that most churches operate like a restaurant where all the practices take place by professionals in a brick and mortar space. And they're really all there to serve a consumer who comes to, to have a great meal what if we reimagine the church as a fleet of food trucks where the practices were engaged in by small teams who often had a high stake in the success of the food truck that were nimble, adaptable, mobile, able to go out into the community and able to create a contextualized meal that resonated with different pockets in the city, we're able to you know, live out the kingdom of God in a hyper a contextualized way that would, uh, you know, express the kingdom in a way that that resonated with those people there. And so um, what then would those practices be? What community formation practices, what worship practices would they need? What serving practices would they need as a small team in order to, you know, remain uh, a food truck community? And so one of the things that we did to help 
kind of keep sparking this new way of thinking was something called missional imagination workshops, which we cut our, our worship time on a Sunday morning down and which meant less teaching for me. And then we invited everyone to, you know, relocate from rows into circles. And we had built a whole nother room that looked like many living rooms. And we came together in geographical areas you know, we had a giant map of LA. You found where you were. It was color coded and slap bracelets. I mentioned a little bit of this in the book and explain kind of how we did it. But eventually you were sitting with people who lived somehow somewhere near you in a geographical location in the city. And then we just tried to spark their imagination about what sort of practices they could engage in together to serve the community around them. How could they bless others? How could they discern where people hang out and try to embed there in a deeper way? Uh, and eventually that ultimately led to uh, what we end up calling a pop-up Sunday, where we had five different pop-up expressions of church all over the city on a Sunday morning. Uh, and each community had the freedom to discern and create whatever pop-up expression they wanted. Some, some people did, you know, uh, family gatherings in the park. Some people served the marathon runners that were running through the neighborhood that day. Um, you know, others did park cleanups and things like that. But that team created a shared practice on their own that they thought would help them engage the neighborhood. Uh, and so, you know, I, just, I think that idea of what are the practices that will form us to be living an outward life is such an important part of this conversation. Yeah, that's great. Beth, what are y'all doing in Clarksburg that you've kind of experimented with? Yeah, so we um, one, of the, one of the first things that we had to do um, was stop doing all the programs, um, recognizing that there were a lot of volunteer hours and resources mm. and manpower and my attention that was being consumed by all of the programs that we were running. And so what John said about like, hey, this in all of the discipleship was happening as this internal focused thing, we had to say no to that, first of all. And, and I'll be honest, there's a lot of pushback when you when you do that, when you make that shift, um, uh, particularly because so many of the measures of a healthy church are measured by how many people attend and how many programs do you have. In fact, people's decisions on whether or not they come to your church in our consumer Western mindset is, what do you have to offer me? And all of a sudden, when you're saying, no, I don't, I don't have all of these programs. I don't have women's ministry. I don't have men's breakfast. I don't have any of these things. Um, all of a sudden, uh, people are like, well, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you here? What's happening? Like, do you even work? Like all of those things. And so your own identity is attacked in that moment. Your own worth and value is attacked in that moment uh, or many moments whenever that happens and pops up. And so I think that that's the first thing that in making this shift, there has to be in, in, in engaging in some of these practices, you kind of have to be ready that, that you understand the full uh, reality of what that shift is going to mean and what's going to happen with that. Um, so when we started to say no to those things, what we pointed people to instead was we actually adopted um, Michael Frost, Surprise the World. It's a great resource. And we adopted his sort of rule of life that he lays out. And we had our own spin on it for the hyper-local context that we're in. And But we said, no, what we're going to do, our program for discipleship, our main way that we are 
teaching you to be followers of Christ and making other followers of Christ, teaching people how to follow Christ um, and evangelize and all of those things is we're going to bless others. We're going to eat with others. We're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn about Jesus and we're going to have you sent. You're going to go learn to proclaim and demonstrate that the universal reign and rule of God has come here to Clarksburg. That's what we're doing. Um, And, and it's taken a long time. (laughs) It's taken a long time for that shift to happen. There have been people that have come and there have been people that have been, have gone um, as a result of being frustrated by that. Um, but what we're seeing now after years of sort of following this path and walking this out as we're actually seeing um, the people who are less engaged with that and really just interested in, no, I want a date night and I want you to watch my kids so I can go on a date. I just want childcare. You know, uh, they have left. And what we've been left with is this core group of people who are like, no, no, I'm really serious. Like I left my other church to come here because I believe that this is the version of the presence of God. So we like to talk about that. We don't have programs, but we, we are low on programs, but we're high on presence. Um, Mm. and so it's not just that we found other leaders who were disengaged with the version of church that, and the version of the presence of God that was being sold in other places and that have come and have started to step up and lead. Um, but we've also seen, uh, so we have a lot of that and we have a lot of new believers who are like, no, 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 I met my neighbor and I actually want to know what this Christ thing is. And what we've cut out is all the middle, (laughs) all the middle fat that hasn't really, you know. Um, been helpful, but it's just been the long haul and the resilience, the anti-fragileness of mm-hmm. like, hey, let's keep walking in this direction um, and let's keep going. So that's yeah. one of the main things that we've done. Yeah, that's fantastic. Andreas, what, what, what are some ways that you've been shaping people toward missional emergence in their life? Well, so... Um, you know, we're doing this webinar as part of the, you know, what will be in a month or so in Orlando with this pre-conference. And I'm, I'm super excited and pumped about that because it was at a Forge pre-conference years ago where I got connected to a lot of you guys. And it was, it was like a realization where like, I'm not crazy. I'm not the one that's crazy. Uh, Or maybe if I'm crazy, it's the right kind of crazy, right? And there's other crazies out there. So like the first thing I would say is like, for those that are out there kind of listening to this and, you know, maybe you're undecided or you're like, well, there's some things that I'm vibing with, but maybe others that like, just come hang out. You know, I would love to meet you. Um, Don't do it alone, right? That's kind of the, the main point. Have a tribe around you. And that's what that's what Forge is. And that's what I think Forge does really, really well. And has been for me, like a tribe that um, spurs me on, supports, encourages, champions. Like we, we get it, right? We, we know this is hard. We know it's not easy. Like for every success, quote unquote, story, I've got 10, right? Stories of how these things went horribly wrong and how I butchered a conversation with a neighbor or how, you know, I just couldn't mobilize the church in a way that, I wanted to, or I dreamt of. So like, you don't do it alone. The second thing though, and I get, uh, I was reading a, a biography of, of Disney and one of the quotes that stood out that he said was, uh, the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. And for me, what was key early on uh, as I was uh, 
learning just these new paradigms and new rhythms and new way of being and doing church is that before I started talking to others about it or before I would preach or teach or what, or, you know, is I had to begin doing it myself. I had to begin practicing and living into this rhythm and way of life because I mean, you know, the old adage is true. You can't um, take somewhere, some uh, you take, you can't take someone somewhere you haven't been before. Right. That's like leadership 101. It's a maxim. And there's a reason for that, but especially in this, like, unless you are living as a missionary um, and experimenting, taking risks, getting to know your neighbors or your bartenders or your barber or your coworkers or, you know, your barista, like wherever you have been, unless you are living as a sent person, mm -hmm. like what stories are you going to have? How can you with integrity stand before a group of people and tell them, hey, I think you should do this. You should disciple. You should evangelize. You Well, am I doing it? That's really, that's a key question, right? For us, especially at Forge is, are we practitioners? Are we practicing? Are we eating what we're cooking? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that has really been key for me because it's been in those conversations, you know, at, at a bar where sat down next to um, uh, uh, a Vietnamese uh, 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 got him to be a, a, a good friend, but um, kind of started overhearing me have a conversation with a friend. And he said, Hey, I heard you guys talking about God. Uh, what, what are you, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. I've got a church. And he said, what's that? What's a pastor? And so it like, you know, it was at that moment where I realized, Oh, wow. Like, this post-Christianism, post-Christianity. And this wasn't like some wild, you know, like New York or Hollywood, like some of you guys over here, John and Drew, you guys have all the cool stories. Like this is Houston, Texas. And there's a guy who really has like no concept or paradigm for some of the, like, but in that moment, all of these things that I'd been reading and all of these, you know, conference, all these ideas that it's like became real. So, you know, we had like a two hour conversation about, what I do and what that looks like and why I do it and why on earth would anybody pay me to do what I do? It was an awkward, uncomfortable conversation and I made up stuff on the fly, but it's only while you're doing it, right? Um, that, that, that you just begin to gather stories, begin to experiment, begin to practice and you grow and learn from that. Yeah, that's great. Andreas. So good. So good. Um, Drew, talk a little bit about uh, Renaissance and, and how y'all shape disciples for missional involvement and, and, and work, work in there. Since you're a pat preacher, you could do this. So transition that somehow to the common good and talk a little bit about how that's going to be a presence in the community. No, that's cool. Well, one, I just have to acknowledge, I really should have played up the product placement. John's drinking out of a Forge America mug. Andreas has got positively irritating behind him on his, on his desk. I just, I should have really, I really we're falling behind Drew. We're falling yeah, I behind. Know. <laughs> uh, um, I, well, I, I would say I agree a ton with what Andreas said. I mean, I had to go through this journey myself. I still, um, I'm actually writing something right now just on some missional gauges that I kind of created for my own life that are all about, mm. am I actually being a practitioner? Um, Cause I think there is even, there's an ongoing desire that you have to keep doing that. You can't just, you know, I think it's easy to have a little hint of success and say, how do I then start telling everybody again how to do it or become translocal in a way? But 
So I think that's so true. And so most of the lessons, you know, and things that I'm helping as I'm coaching others are really things that I've learned or struggles I felt, um, failures I've experienced. I think that's so great. Um, and I would agree too. Forge has helped. We, we use a lot of Forge stuff. We're so thankful for this. Uh, a lot of the practices that John's advocating for, um, Beth was talking about, those are all things that we teach our people as well. I would say the big thing I would add to that is that we've discovered that the sustainability of mission is directly tied to someone being able to articulate their own missional call. And so when we first got into this, one of the things that we discovered that people don't stick with this, if they, if they feel like I've just told them to go do it, or if they've, I've given them some practices and they've read it in a book, mm. that we need to really start with, with kind of calling and burden. And we need to help them, um, one, start to say, where, where is there brokenness around me? Where are there things that I am seeing that aren't right in the world that King Jesus is not okay with? And then also, uh, where am I uniquely gifted and, and called? Uh, where do I, you know, maybe my past experience lend to something? And then we want to work with that to kind of build infrastructure around that. Not that God doesn't, the spirit doesn't move and he doesn't, you know, we don't pivot. There aren't times where God calls us into more liminal spaces where it's going to actually be outside of some of our talents or gifts or past experiences where he's going to do his best work in us, but that they can at least be able to start <clears throat> discerning the spirit's voice in their life, God's voice in their life and be able to articulate so that because it is really tough and messy, as I was describing earlier, and you, and as you engage some of these practices, you're going to fail more than you succeed. Uh, you know, maybe to use baseball, you think about like a batter, they, they fail. Most guys hit in the two hundreds. I mean, they're, you know, seven, eight times out of 10, they're actually uh, not, not connecting with the ball. Um, you know, that you're not going to succeed all the time. And the only thing that keeps you going is that when you can articulate it and without a shadow of a doubt, say, I've, I've discerned God's voice in this. I, my community around me has affirmed that. And this is something I want to continue to give my life to, even though it might not be easy, even though I might not have a lot of results. I felt called to this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start a micro church. I only have two people coming. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm a failure. I know that maybe that's, you know, God's called me for a unique you know, purpose. I'm willing to give my life to these two people or whatever it is. I want to serve the poor. Man, I would love, to, I wish I had my whole nonprofit, but I've got 15, you know, homeless unhoused friends that I'm, I'm able to connect with all the time. And so I think that's for us been, uh, been the secret sauce. Can we actually help people articulate? And so that's actually our, one of our, we were talking about scorecards and metrics. That's number one for us. We want a hundred percent of people connected to Renaissance to be able to articulate their own missional call. And we think if we can get people to do that, then all the practices and all the formation starts to get a lot easier and a lot more fun because it's not coming from a place of coercion or a place of guilt, but of a place of possibility and hope um, that's coming from, you know, they, we really feel like we're participating with God. Um, with that, um, you know, it, talking about common good, that's really been my own, again, as a practitioner and discerning my own calling. One of the things mm. we got here and I started serving on the ground with three or four local nonprofits and realized we've actually, we live in a kind of a more blue collar neighborhood that's being gentrified a little bit, but a lot of nonprofits and social service agencies, many of them were vastly under-resourced. Mm. 
And so I, I just, uh, myself and uh, Jace Rashi, who came and co-planted with me, we just had a deep desire to see something change uh, with that. And we wanted to spotlight many of them. We feel like are doing kingdom work, even though not all of them claim the name of Christ. They're doing some things to uh, help unhoused people or help um, disabled folks or to care for vulnerable populations. And so we actually, well, there's no good coffee shops in our neighborhood. There's not a really good place to work. So we kind of created this common good co It's the idea that we want to fuel the hustle of our neighborhood and give back. So everyone has an opportunity at their own hustle. And, uh, and in doing that, um, having a quality workspace, have a, have a great coffee shop that's just a social space for our neighborhood. And then we're giving a portion of our proceeds back to local nonprofits. We're actually spotlighting their stories in the space. And uh, it's been awesome. It's because of that. I get to hang out now with city councilors, nonprofit folks, the mayor. I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in conversations I never, like I dreamed of having when I was just a pastor. Uh, and again, it's all birthed out of uh, I'm still like, uh, I actually feel bad. I'm talking about I, Tuesdays are typically the morning. I'm driving to Greater Boston Food Bank for one of my nonprofit um, friends to go pick up food that they're going to be feeding people. I'm slinging thousands of pounds of boxes and I'm just Drew. I'm not Pastor Drew. I'm not, you know, pro, I'm just okay. a random person serving. And so this whole genesis of the business kind of bird that out. It's also going to be a place for our communities, our micro churches to come and huddle and, and, you know, use some of the conference room space and stuff as well. But yeah, that's the, that was kind of the whole genesis of the idea. And it's given you some new 12 to 18 hour days uh, <laughs> and uh, putting that yeah. together, trying to save yep. money. <laughs> yep, yeah. yep. Yep. 70 hour work week. And then I got to uh, shovel two feet of snow this weekend. So it was, it was a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as someone that's opened a coffee shop before, I know I, I feel your pain uh, for sure. Uh, Roland, it might be helpful just to, yeah. To jump off what Drew was talking about, just to create another image of what this looks like, both for mm-hmm. me, I know John has this um, as well, but for me, my space that I like, I like, I think that when we talk about being sent and the idea of like living this out uh, for ourselves before we start telling and instructing other people how to do that, um, I think that that is so very important. And so, for me, as I was engaging in this at the beginning and trying to lead other people to it, that was something I needed to do too. And so mm-hmm. I think it might be helpful to create some, to perk other people's imagination, to share what that looks like for us yeah. in our context. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, that looks like being extremely engaged in my kids' elementary school. So I was engaged in that for a really long time. And then there was a void. I swore I would never be on the PTA in an official capacity. <laughs> I'd always be their right-hand cheerleader. But they, they needed somebody and so stepped up um, to the PTA president. There were some really big under-resourced needs that they had. And through that, have started, just like Drew was talking about, have started engaging in conversations with city uh, county council people and the board of education, like it has opened up a tremendous opportunity to begin having greater and to be invited to the table to have conversations about like countywide things. And I'm a church and my church is very tiny. Like I'm in the less than a hundred people and all of a sudden I'm getting invited to the table and have conversations about this because Mm. I've, I've invested and built the relationship and I, and they know that I care right as pastor of this church. No one cares about me because all they think I care about is my church. But as this person who is advocating and seeking the good of the entire community, all of a sudden, like 
they're like, oh, we want the same things. Okay, let's go go do that. So just to paint the picture, I know, John, you have your, your golf place. Yeah, I mean, I, I office out of a co-working space in Hollywood that uh, a, a member of our community started years ago to help uh, independent artists thrive and flourish. And so it's great to be there. Um, about It's about 50% uh, people who don't know Jesus yet who are uh, loving kind of the vibe of being around those who are pursuing um, the Jesus life. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I've always been more of a, an athlete. And so for me, my primary missional spaces have always been around sports. So it's basketball gyms, it's coaching youth sports, it's sports bars where I can, you know, gather with others to watch. And then when COVID hit and kind of shut all those things down. And so the one thing in LA that was open was uh, golf. And so I, you know, I, I became a volunteer marshal at a, a golf course about a mile from my house, um, mm. doing six hours a week, driving around, <laughs> pastoring people on the course, helping them find lost clubs and, you know, having conversations and stuff. And so, um, you know, that's opened up a whole new world of, 20 year old, you know, artists and who are working up there in the cart barn or, you know, the aspiring singers who are working as waitresses up in the restaurant and stuff. And uh, so that's kind of been my new community for the last 18 months that I'm kind of actively trying to serve and, and disciple into the way of Jesus um, just because of, you know, the, the context that we're in right now. Andreas, where are you, where are you kind of mixing it up for yourself? Well, so John, real quick, uh, you mentioned earlier these kind of two spaces in your theology of spiritual formation. You mentioned the providential. What was the other one? I, I call it providential catalysts and practical catalysts. So, so the practical catalysts, because um, like it, it sounds like uh, it can be easy for folks hearing this. And you've got folks opening coffee shops and hanging out with movie stars and uh, you know, like, uh, and that's, that's great. I'd love, you know, I feel called to movie stars, but I don't know why God doesn't fulfill that. Um, but like what, what's the, when you get, we were talking earlier, I mean, when you get started, there is an intentionality that comes with this, right? Especially when you're getting, in other words, hmm. the difference between, you know, just kind of waiting for things to happen, which is, you know, the kind of providential catalyst and, you know, God will do whatever he wants. He's God, he's Lord, he's King, he's sovereign. But there are like, it's always been, you know, interesting to me that it's when folks have started being more intentional. So Drew talks about helping his folks move into discover and then move into their missional call. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's been huge. Um, for, for me uh, and for those around me as well is when folks are able to articulate both or s simple things like these are the people, one, two, three, five people I have been sent, or this is the place, you know, the PTA or the PTL where I have been sent. There's, it seems like there's an intentionality that comes with this, that if people were more intentional, um, you know, they, I mean, you begin to see fruit and you begin to learn and experience. I mean, have you guys found that to be the case? Yeah. I mean, I'll, uh, one of my favorite new spaces of kind of, you know, missional mischief, I kind of call it, I started noticing, um, you know, and we all have that deconstruction is kind of the new is one of the new buzzwords that's out there. Like I'm whatever that means, you know, and, and of course we want to reconstruct, you know, something, um, good. Um, so what I did, I went out on Facebook and to kind of my crowd and said, Hey, I'm going to host 
a discussion every Monday night at my house around deconstruction and PTSD from church life. And I immediately had a bunch of people sign up, said, I'm, I'll be there. And a lot of them are 20 somethings, 30 somethings. They're, they're younger. I even had a, 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 a gal from England zoom in last night. And so my wife and I were sitting with these 20 somethings talking about their church experiences, uh, their ex- experiences with scripture and the Bible and um, great conversations around that. So I think, I think, intentionality is key. And if you look, I mean, if you want to go theological on that, you know, John, John 20, you know, Jesus shows up and tells the disciples, you are sent as the father sent me. And so I think there's an intentionality that Jesus is kind of saying there, not only Hmm. in our identity that we're sent people, but then you say, well, how am I sent? Well, in the way that the father sent me. So then we can look at the gospels and look at Jesus's life and, you know, him having food and engaging with people and tax collectors and sinners, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of a sudden we get this intentional mm-hmm. methodology of being, being a missionary. So um, I, yeah, I do think yeah. intentionality is key. And Andreas, I would also add that I when I started to engage in this particular way in my own faith, my own faith came alive. Uh, I would say that I was pretty much running on the uh, hype and passion and exhaust fumes from my way earlier year and 15 years of marriage and 20 years of ministry, like was all bringing me to this place of like, but when I started to engage in this particular way, there was a revitalization that began to change mm. for me because it was no longer about doing the church thing. It was about participating in the kingdom, which that's like totally 100% different, like just so mm. very different. And so all of a sudden, you know, like in the church thing, I was always talking about opportunities to share my faith and talking about how you need to and talking about uh, those opportunities. But when I began to participate in the kingdom and be involved in my local context and get outside the walls of the church, all of and, and participate in real relationships, not project relationships with non-believers, but part- where my best friends were non-believers. Um, all of a sudden there mm-hmm. were doors that were flinging open all over the place. And so that was true of me as a pastor, but also what I found in those that I'm pastoring is that they are no longer sitting in the, in the seats um, on a Sunday morning, wondering that that sermon wasn't very good. Cause you weren't very funny or, you know, like those sorts of things, or that didn't really hit home for me. But instead mm. what started to happen is I think people started to show up on a Sunday morning, hungering and thirsting for Christ, not waiting for me to entertain them because mm. they had been out in the field, engaging in the kingdom in all of these different ways. And they were tired and they were hungry and they needed the answer. So it wasn't me shoving the answers down their throat and proclaiming the gospel. It was, no, no, I desperately need to understand this because I'm in the middle of a situation where I need to know and grasp what's going on. So it wasn't like two songs to warm up to worship. It was, I'm desperate to worship in the presence of God. I've been waiting for this all week long. I want this to refresh my soul. So I think it really does. It changes everything when we make this shift within ourselves and begin to Mm -hmm. make that in our congregation as well. That's fantastic, Beth. 
That's great. Well, hey, we're we're uh, coming up close to out of time, uh, but before we get out of here, I mean, we're sitting here with four active pastors of faith communities, kind of walking through stuff in different parts of the country. Um, you know, could you could you kind of give the the audience, the listening audience, which are probably a lot of church leaders and pastors a sentence or two of encouragement um, for kind of stepping into this? Like, like why, why should they step into this? I mean, what comes to my mind first, Roland, is just the, you know, just the honesty and confession that this this has been the hardest two years of my ministry. I mean, I've, I've I've been a pastor for 20 Mm -hmm. years and this has been by far the hardest two years, most painful years, the most frustrating years, uh, you know, with the exodus from our city, with the way that the liminality has in not being in the office has caused staff rifts and divisions that have been painful. I mean, um, the, the inability to see your people on a weekly basis, look them in the eye and, and do something maybe that you love, like teaching that you've been gifted for. And so um, I, I think the invitation uh, is not to try harder, do more, you know, you're not enough. I think the invitation is, is there a way that God is allowing this incredible season in our country um, to to liberate us, to free us from uh, old ways, you know, that that maybe we can emerge from this with more realistic expectations on us as pastors, that it's not all about us at the center of the life of the church, um, and that maybe the scattering of our people um, and the inability to even do what we used to do, is, as Beth was talking about trying to simplify programs, Maybe there's an opportunity to, to kind of leverage that and say, you know, how can we emerge different and emerge healthier from this? Uh, and I think those are the sorts of, of questions that I'm still trying to keep asking is, you know, what, what practices came up during this time that are worth doing? You know, what, what do we need more of? And I think you're getting a lot of that with people who are thinking about working from home or, or you know, commuting less. Or, you know, I know people who have quit very successful industry jobs because they realized that they were when they were home with their kids more, they realized that that was a, a better life for them. And they'd rather get mm. out of the fact, you know, they'd rather make less money and spend more time with their kids. I think that's a beautiful Jesus honoring, you know, decision they made. And so, um, yeah, I think what's the invitation, you know, that God is giving us as leaders in the midst of this is, is the question that I think is, is worth asking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would piggyback on that. I think the invitation is I jumped into, this is not easy. This is not a silver bullet. I don't think what Forge is offering is a silver bullet. It's actually an invitation mm-hmm. to leave silver bullets behind. And mm-hmm. if you're tired of like going to every conference and reading every book and thinking this is the new formula that's going to fix everything, I think Forge is literally saying, hey, come be a part of people who are tired of that and just are embracing that ministry and life is complex and messy. And mm-hmm. as faithfully and as obediently as we can, we're just going to continue to make Jesus as Lord. And we're going to stop trying to be in that hamster wheel that makes us feel like we're not enough or that we're inadequate. All Jesus is asking us to do is declare him as king and be obedient and just trust that he's got the rest. And so for me, you know, and not that I don't still need to detox on some of the church growth stuff. I have bad days where I wake up and I still want to apply old metrics to my my current realities. But I do think what I keep coming back to is, is that I'm being free from that. And I'm tired of just looking for the next magic formula that's going to make everything right and just embrace the, my everyday life as messy and as complex it is, is as the place that God wants to use me and the place that he wants to use everybody that I'm being entrusted to empower and encourage. That's great, dude. 
Roland, uh, you know, for me, <clears throat> I actually, I, I agree with what Beth said earlier. Like there is no better life. Um, this, it, it really is fun. And, but the reason it's fun, Roland, you joked earlier, like, uh, uh, about being, the, uh, being theological and it's like, well, none of us would be here if there wasn't <laughs> biblical theological convictions behind all of this. But, but so it's fun because we're going with the grain of who we were designed to be, to use empty right language, kingdom priests co-working with God on his mission of cosmic renewal and restoration. Like what greater purpose could you have in life? And that doesn't mean everybody opens a coffee shop. It means you're serving and loving in small, simple, um, flexible, humble ways, wherever it is that the Lord has served you. And so maybe maybe it's fun because you're talking to a bunch of evangelists, uh, but like this is who we were designed to be. What greater purpose uh, could there possibly be than joining God and what he's doing and what he's up to? I think I would just to piggyback on what I already said of like, hey, this changes everything for me and my faith and my life and exciting and it's fun. And it's really hard. <laughs> it's absolutely really hard to um, I would, I would just say that having been in ministry for so many years, there comes a time where you get to the end of the rope and you think, wait, is this actually worth it? Is chasing down the larger attendance out of service mm-hmm. is making sure we have enough money to keep the lights on. Is this really, is this really all this is about? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you're in ministry long enough and you have any sort of a conscious and a soul left, <laughs> you eventually get to that point where you have to ask yourself that question And I think that this is the only answer to that question. Like this is the only alternative um, in in every other context and in, 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 in sort of ministry models where it's just about building your own church. Uh, You get to the end and you say, no, this really wasn't worth it. This is no different than building a brand of Coke or building a brand of Pepsi or building whatever. Um, And this is really the uh, switching to the kingdom team versus the church team is really the only reason like it's the only uh it's the only reason that holds water and so i i guess i would say that that's why it's it's good to engage in this conversation of missional movement and i think that forge offers a great band and tribe of people who are all trying to engage have are trying to let go of the church planting monster that that can live in all of us and engage in the kingdom uh yeah in 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 the realities of the kingdom yeah, that's good, Beth. Uh, I, and what you four have said, we hear all the time at Forge, which is uh, we are more than anything a relational tribe of people uh, that are kind of locked together, um, trying to follow Jesus in mission the best that we can. And so, you know, we do have tools. We do have kind of training ideas and coaching and all that kind of stuff to help. But we are primarily in relationship with each other and, and with Christ. 
uh, doing this together. And so uh, that is the invitation to people. Um, and I, I hope if you're watching, uh, I hope you have signed up for Exponential uh, 2022. If you haven't, be sure to do that. We would love to see you at the Old America pre-conference track. Uh, we're also doing a lunch and then we're doing four breakout uh, webinars. We'll have a Forge America booth there. And John, Drew, Andreas, and Beth will be there. And we would all, all love to meet you in person. Just tell us you saw us on um, on the webinar. And I don't know, maybe we can get John to give you a, a book or something. So, um, you know, you should pick up Positively Irritating on Amazon. I'm just going to throw that in again. If you're a pastor, it's a really, really good um, overview of missional shifting um, and some of the stuff that we've talked about today. So we would love to see you at, uh, at Exponential. Uh, if you are not going to be there, please connect with us at forgeamerica.com. Um, and there's a place where you can connect with the tribe. Um, and then we also have a Forge America podcast that I would point you to that's on iTunes and Spotify and the, the places um, where you listen um, to podcasts. We've enjoyed having the conversation with you. And um John, Drew, Beth, Andreas, thank you all for all your thoughts. Thanks for listening to this Exponential podcast episode. Visit Exponential.org for more resources to become a part of our Multipliers community. We look forward to connecting with you and the entire Exponential community of like-minded multiplication leaders at one of our upcoming events.